Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in John chapter 5. I'm only going to do six verses today, John 5, 24 through 29. We are in the middle of the story of Jesus healing the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. The invalid then tells the Jewish leaders who did it and that it was done on a Sabbath. The Jewish leaders then try to killed Jesus because he had done two things. He had made himself out equal to the Father, and he had worked, so-called, on the Sabbath or advocated it because the man picked up his mat when he walked off. Now, the charge against Jesus that he had blasphemed because he had made himself equal with the Father is the immediate background of this incident. Jesus said that the Father is working, I am working, and I'm and, I'm, and greater works than, that I'm doing now will be done by you. So he said that he identified himself with the works of the Father. Then he mentions in particular the Father gives resurrected life. I am going to resurrect. And then he says that the Father judges. And then Jesus says, I'm going to judge. The Father is not going to judge without me. That's the immediate background. He's going to continue with his identification of himself with the Father in these six verses that we're going over in verses 24 through 29. Now to give you the broader context... This was a trip that Jesus took down from Galilee to one of the feasts. It's controverted as to which feast it was. John doesn't say. We're going to assume the Passover because it's probably the Passover, but we don't know. And Jesus is in the middle of his great Galilean ministry, so this is sort of a side trip that he took down to Jerusalem. It's still somewhat at the beginning of his ministry. It's gotten started a little bit in Galilee, but he's still not here at the very end when he was down in Jerusalem about to get arrested in tried and killed. So that's where we are. We'll start with John 5:24. Jesus says this, and we can assume he's talking to his pharisaical critics and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin people down there in Jerusalem. He says this to them, I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. Now, this is the one requirement for eternal life. If you believe in Jesus, now, I know that repentance is a part of belief. If you believe in him, you're going to repent. I know that there's a lot of controversy over exactly what it is to get saved. If you have to add repentance, does that mean that you're adding works righteousness? You know, the old lordship, salvation controversy, the marrow controversy. I'm not going to get into that. I just know that if you scan through the New Testament, when people get saved, you either see the word believe or repent connected with that salvation, and that's as far as I need to get into it, both practically and for right now. Notice that the belief here is not believing in Jesus so much, it's believing in the Father. Anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me, well, the him who sent Jesus is the Father. So when you believe in Jesus, you're believing the Father. We can't make that much of a distinction between the two. When you do believe, you have eternal life. That means you're never going to die, and you will not come under judgment. So the, the statement here is explicit. You believe, you won't get judged. You don't believe, and you will get judged. Judgment is a part of the New Testament message of Jesus. It's everywhere in the New Testament. It just kills me how people say, well, you know, Jesus is, a, is the God of love in the New Testament. The God of wrath is in the Old Testament. Jesus did away with all that wrath. You want wrath? Listen, if you would give me a nickel for every time I can find the wrath of Jesus in the New Testament, I would be a millionaire. It's everywhere. 
We need to present people that they are under the judgment of God. They were under the judgment of God the day they got born, and they need to get saved. Otherwise, they're not going to have any incentive to get saved. They'll just keep leaving, living their worldly, useless lives, ultimately, uh, ultimately useless lives. They'll keep doing that, and they won't pass from death to life. That phrase, pass from, pass from death to life, is used also in 1 John, same author, different different. Uh, writing first John three fourteen, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. The one who does not love remains in death. So you don't love, you haven't passed from death to life, and therefore you remain in death. That's what happens when you don't believe in Jesus. You remain in your death. Why can't people say that today in the Church of Jesus Christ, in the American compromised, sinner friendly church? We go now to verse 25 of John 5. Jesus continues talking to his critics. I assure you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now here he's talking about the spiritually dead. They're going to hear the voice of the Son of God. They're going to hear Jesus' message and they're going to believe and they're going to live and they're going to pass from death to life. So Jesus is continuing with, with the theme, you know, believe in God, the Father, believe in me. The Father gives life, I'm going to give life. He's making himself divine. In fact, you could just say that John 5 is basically a discourse on the divinity of Christ. Now, the hour is coming that refers to the future. The resurrection of the dead physically, as the NIV Study Bible says, and is now here that refers to the present. Now, the next question is, is what happens in the present? The physical resurrection is to the dead that is happening now, when the dead hear the voice of the Son of God and live, or is it referring to the spiritually dead who hear the voice of the Son of God and become born-again members of the kingdom of Jesus Christ? The spiritually dead. Well, the NIV Study Bible, excuse me, John Gill says that the time is now here. It refers to the resurrections Jesus was going to do in this life. For example, the resurrection of the widow of Nain's son, the resurrection of Lazarus, also, Jairus's, I forgot about Jairus's daughter. And so Jesus could be referring to the physical resurrections he's doing. But I really think that what he's talking about here, he's going along with what he said in the previous verse about passing from death to life. He's talking about the dead, spiritual dead, are going to hear the voice of the Son of God. They're going to come alive. They're going to live because Jesus is going to start preaching the gospel. The context of verse 24 supports that interpretation that the dead who hear the Son of God are the spiritually dead, not not the widow of Nain's sons, Nain's son, or Lazarus, but the spiritually dead. Because in verse 24, Jesus said, "Anyone who believes the Father has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life." That's obviously talking about spiritual resurrection. So when we get down to 25, and Jesus said, "The time is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God." If you go back to the context of verse 24, which talks about spiritual resurrection, that's probably what he's also talking about in John 25 based upon the hermeneutical principle of, of what the context is, then I think that that's what's going on here. Jesus is talking about people are going to come alive in the spirit. They're going to become spiritually alive. John 5:26. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. Now here's one more identification of Jesus with the Father. He's already said that the, the Father is working and he is working. Miracles. He's also said that the Father resurrects, and he's going to resurrect. He's just talked about it in the previous verse. 
He's also talked about in previous verses that the Father judges, but he does not judge alone. He judges with the Son. So Jesus has arrogated to himself resurrection power, judgment power, miracle-working power. Why? Because he is divine, just like the Father is. So in verse 26, we see the divinity of the Father also ex existing in the divinity of the Son. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he is granted to the Son to have life in himself. So just as the Father has life, so the Son has life. One more point of identification. Now, how does God have life? There's, here's a string of about six scriptures from the Old Testament, which shows that God the Father has life in himself. Deuteronomy 30.20 Love the Lord your God, obey him, and remain faithful to him, for he is your life. And he will prolong your life in the land the Lord swore to give to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is the prolonger of life. In fact, he is, he was the, the Jews' life. Job 10.12 Job speaking, you gave me life and faithful love, and your care has guarded my life. So God is life, and he gives life to his Old Testament saints. Job 33, verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Psalm 1611, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. In your right hand are eternal pleasures. We have life from God the Father. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? If somebody's beating on you and trying to take your life away, you are defended with a fortress named God, and he's going to protect your life, according to Psalm 27, verse 1. Psalms 36, verse 9, For with you is life's fountain. In your light we will see light. I suppose the metaphor here is that of a fountain springing up, a fountain of water, and of course water gives life. You can't live without it. If you want water to sustain your life, that's God the Father. As Jesus put it, living water springing up to eternal life. So Jesus has that life. Now this verse in verse 26 says, So also he, God the Father, has granted to the Son to have life. Well, when did God the Father grant life to the Son? Well, there's a couple of options here. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says this refers to the essential life of the Son before all time. The, point, the problem with that, it seems to me, is that it sounds like there's a time when God granted to the Son to have life like he created the Son, which, of course, we can't believe because we're not Arians and we're not Jehovah's Witnesses. But you could say he, from all eternity, granted the Son to have life in himself. I guess that's all right. Most of the church fathers believe that this is what John was referring to here, and some modern people still believe it. I think most people now believe that it's life in the incarnate Son. He has granted the Son to have life in himself. That's when he incarnated Jesus, and that's when he granted Jesus life. John Calvin believed that, and I say, why not believe both? He eternally gave life to the Son, and he gave, in his divinity and in his humanity, he gave life to the Son when he incarnated Jesus. But the point is, Jesus has got life, and if we want to appropriate that life for us, we have to believe in him and believe in the Father who sent him, so that we might pass from death to life and avoid judgment. We go to verse 27. And he, God the Father, has granted him, God the Son, the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, I've already talked in my last audio how that sounds like it contradicts John 3.17, which says that the Son of Man did not come to judge the world. And I pointed out that in John 3.18, the world is already under judgment. No need for Jesus to judge us again. We're already under judgment, under the wrath of God, merely by being born. 
But this is referring to judgment at the end of the world. He's going to get. He's going to talk about resurrections of the body at the end of the world. Just the next verse or so, next couple of verses. So now I think he's switching to the future here. He's already talking about. He's he has been talking about be, making get, making people have life by making them born again, by making them pass from death to life. And now he's talking about judgment at the end of the world. For he, God, has granted Jesus the right to pass judgment. Why? Because he, Jesus, is the Son of Man. Now, here is a direct reference to a messianic term that Jesus used of himself. I am, since that's such an important term, I think it's used about 90-something times in the New Testament. Only other time that somebody else used it was Stephen in the persecution at his stoning. But it's a messianic term. I'm going to read you why. And, the, and, and what John is saying here to the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin big shots. He's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of Man. And that means I am the Son of God. And so, like I say, John 5 is a discourse on the divinity of Christ. And the Son of Man, that title just increases the evidence that he is divine and the Son of God. And that he has the right to pass judgment on all humanity at the end of time. Well, let's read what I've gotten from various sources about the Son of Man. Many have said that Jesus used this phrase to emphasize his humanity. The Jewish idiom used, quote, son of, unquote, to show, quote, a close and intimate connection with, unquote. Therefore, a son of man is someone who is human, who has humanity. There's nothing wrong with this idea as long as one does not use it to detract from Jesus' divinity. After all, Jesus uses the phrase of himself when he forgave sins in Mark 2.10, quote, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, unquote. However, ironically, the phrase Son of Man is actually used by Jesus to emphasize his divinity. He got the phrase from Daniel 7, 13 and 14, quote, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Unquote. This reference is the only relevant use of the phrase Son of Man in the Old Testament. From the context, it is obvious that Daniel is using the term of someone divine. The Son of Man was presented before God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and was given, quote, dominion, glory, and a kingdom, unquote. But we know even more than we can get from the context. Daniel was a prisoner of the Babylonians during the famous Jewish Babylonian exile, which started 587 586 B.C. In Old Babylonian, the phrase Son of Man meant heir to royalty. So when Daniel used the term, the term was functionally equivalent to saying that one like a Son of Man is rightful heir and successor to the divine throne. Son of Man is essentially the same as Son of God in this context. In the New Testament, no one called Jesus the Son of Man, with the exception of Stephen as he was being stoned in Acts 7. Jesus used, of, used it of himself all the time. He is recorded as doing this about 90 times in the Gospels. So every time he used it, he was essentially, essentially saying, I am God, and I will inherit a kingdom and have dominion forever and ever. And I will establish that kingdom by coming on the clouds and judgment upon my enemies. It is debated whether the Jews in Jesus' day actually were using the phrase, quote, son of man, unquote, as a messianic term. Regardless of how the Jews used the phrase, Jesus at least initiated the use of the phrase as referring to the divine Messiah if he didn't appropriate a phrase already in use. So to summarize, Son of Man equals Son of God equals God. 
Adam Clark backs this up. He says, quote, because he is the Messiah, for in this sense, the phrase son of man is often to be understood. Of course, that's what it means, the Messiah. Now, we'll point out one minor point here where Jesus in verse 27 says, he, God the Father, has granted him, the son, the right to pass judgment. I assume that was judgment at the end of the world, which I do believe it is. Adam Clark says it's the judgment coming shortly in AD 70, or at least he suggested. I don't think that that's, I think that that's often the case, that judgment is referred to in the Gospels as referring to AD 70. I am an Orthodox preterist, so I'm, my inclination is that way, but I don't think that's what he meant here. I think he's talking about passing judgment at the end of time. I could be wrong, but I think that's what he's doing, because he's basically talking about personal salvation. Do you have life if you pass from death into life? He talks about eternal life, though so I think that's what he's talking about, the right to pass judgment on those who do not believe him. John 5, verse 28 through 29. Do not be amazed at this, Jesus continues, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment. Now, the first thing we need to point out here is this has to refer to the physical resurrection of the dead at the end of time, even though Jesus talks about spiritual resurrections at other parts of the context of this verse. But here it has to be a physical resurrection because it says all who are in the graves. All who are in the graves means corpses, folks, dead bodies. Now, this is a great verse to use against hyperpreterist heretics who say that the physical resurrection of the dead already happened in 87, and now there's nothing left but some kind of a physical resurrection if that didn't happen up in heaven already, which is absolute heresy, absolute nonsense. And this verse absolutely clobbers that position right between the eyes. All who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Now, Jesus said, do not be amazed at this. Amazed at what? Well, it could be he could be referring to the cure of the man at the pool of Bethesda, which occasioned all this discourse. John Gill suggests that. John Gill suggests it could be that do not be amazed that Jesus is the Son of Man, because that's what the previous context of verse 27 is. He says, because I'm the Son of Man, I have the right to judge. Don't be amazed at this. And I think that media context is what governs here. I think that's the answer right there. Or you could go back a couple verses to verse 25. Do not be amazed at the spiritually dead hear Jesus' voice and live when Jesus is talking about spiritual salvation. Or it could be, going back to the previous verse, don't be amazed that Jesus has the authority to judge. Or it could just be referring to all of what he just said, that Jesus can give spiritual life, he can resurrect people, he can judge people, he can cure people that are invalids for 38 years, he can do all of that. Do not be amazed at all of this stuff. And here is the great statement of the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. Which statement is in all the, in the major creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed? It's in there. And if you don't believe it, you are a heretic. I don't know how to say it politely. So if you're a hyperpreterist and perhaps listening to this, unlikely, of course, but if you are, you need to read that verse and realize there's a reason that verse was put in the creeds. Even if you don't like the creeds, there was a reason why it was put there the lowest common denominator of faith, of, of the Orthodox Christian faith, of those creeds, and the resurrection of the dead is in there. It's, it's a critical part of our belief in Christ. I emphasize this. I remember I was doing a teenage Bible study, and a young teenage girl in there who had diabetes said, are we going to have new bodies? And she had not been taught that yet. She'd been a believer for most of her life, and she had not been taught that. And I thought, oh, man, I guess it's something we just take for granted and don't mention too much. 
Not until some heretic comes along and denies it do we get all hot and bothered about it. We need to remember the resurrection of the dead is an important aspect of the Christian faith. And I will admit that as an ex-rationalist, as an ex-skeptic, that I have trouble with that because that's a big miracle. But I've seen enough little miracles now, and I know the Word of God is true, having tested it for over half a century, 60 years. I know it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen, and I think it's going to be sort of a, an amazing thing when it does happen. I have to take a lot of, a lot of this on faith, but it's true because our Lord said it. Notice in verse 28, he says, Do not be amazed at this because a time is coming. Referring to the future, he doesn't say a time is coming and now is, like he did in verse 25. When he said in verse 25, a time is coming and now is, verse, the now is was referring to Jesus' current ministry in this life, which was probably talking about getting people spiritually born again, although it might have referred to the few resurrections that Jesus did in his earthly ministry, but it's probably referring to spiritual resurrection, people getting born again. So if I'm right about that, that means in this little section, Jesus has told everybody that, hey, I can give you spiritual life in this life, and hey, after you die at the end of time, I can give you a resurrected body. Now, how's that? How's that? I'm just a teacher. I'm just a prophet. I am the I am God incarnate, incarnate standing here looking at you. So what you when you saw that man that had been invalided for 38 years when you saw him walk you just saw the tip of the iceberg my friends and of course the jews instead of being excited about this wonderful news they try to kill him all right jesus will continue with his messianic affirmations in the next 18 verses of john 5 john 5 30 through 47 we'll close up the chapter and we'll do that in the next audio hope you enjoyed this one